I think it has to do with something that we mentioned at the very end of the conversation, which is um, every time you have an opportunity to ingest some type of media, you choose what kind of music you listen to, what movie you watch, what podcast you listen to, you kind of have an option to either engage with something that will help you or engage with something that will not help you. Those are the two options. Um, and I think right now you have an option to spend an hour listening to something that will help you. And for me, that that's a no brainer. All right. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Just wanted to let you guys know about some of the offerings that NeuroFlex is providing currently in the Miami Fort Lauderdale area. Um, brain mapping is a tool that we use to assess the electrical activity of people's brains. Um, and we do this in order to then create an individualized protocol based on your unique neurophysiology uh, to train your brain to improve uh, your sleep, your uh, focus, memory, um, kind of whatever sort of uh, aspects of cognition that you're looking to improve with a variety of different tools, such as neurofeedback, neurostimulation, audiovisual entrainment, and brain photobiomodulation. So if you're currently in the Miami Fort Lauderdale area and interested in getting started with that, go to neuroflex.com, that's N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X.com, or you can shoot me an email, toby, T-O-B-Y, at neuroflex.com. On to the episode today, uh, we have a very special guest, Johnny Crowder. Johnny is a suicide and abuse survivor, a TEDx speaker, a billboard charting heavy metal musician, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, a text-based mental health platform that provides daily support to users in nearly 100 countries around the world. But in the years leading up to these incredible leaps in advocacy, every day was a battle against schizophrenic hallucinations and suicidal ideation. After a lifetime of resisting professional care and shying away from sharing his story, Johnny's curiosity flowered and the healing slowly began. So Johnny, really excited to have you on the show with us today. Thank you a ton for having me. That that description makes it sound so poetic. It <laughs> felt it felt really brutal at the time, but hearing it in retrospect, I'm like, wow, what a journey, you know? Right. Yeah. Some sometimes it's like it I think about that in my life a lot. Like things only kind of like make sense like that in retrospect, like looking back, but while you're going through it, you're just like, why am I why am I being forced to go through all this unnecessary stuff? But and maybe you realize it's like it is maybe necessary. It's like part of the journey, right? Yeah. If you were to get into a time machine and go back and tell my 14 year old self, like, oh, don't worry. In 15 years, you're going to be doing advocacy. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to make it 15 years. Like it is, it's really cool to see how my story has resulted in advocacy um, but it's really hard to imagine that at the time when you're going through it, like one day you'll help somebody who's going through this. And you're like, honestly, when you're in that deep of pain, you're like, I don't care who else is going through this. I am going through this right now. And I need someone to help me. Was there someone for you that, that really made a powerful change? <sighs> it's going to sound like a cop-out, but my therapist, <laughs> like it was really hard to find um, people who understood what I was going through, it was hard to find people to trust. And 
I'm very thankful for my therapist at the time. I cycled through a few because I did not like the first several therapists I met with, but I met, I found one that really felt she wasn't treating me like a crazy person, but she also wasn't treating me like I was perfectly fine and didn't need any help. It was like this sweet spot where she was like, I understand that you're going through something that's not fair and I want to help you navigate that. Um, and it felt genuine. So looking back, I, I wonder what my recovery would have looked like without her. Gotcha. Okay. And for those of you, uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with your story, who haven't maybe seen your, uh, some of your TEDx talks, can you kind of walk me through what led up to, you know, you reaching the point where you're now uh, providing this, you know, mental health advocacy? The summary version is I grew up in an abusive home with multiple mental health conditions, rather severe, um, resisted treatment because I didn't think it would work. I thought I was too far gone. I didn't trust providers. I had a whole list of reasons why um, I wasn't interested in pursuing treatment. Then I finally started treatment when I was maybe 15 years old um, and then started going to therapy regularly and taking medication. I went to university for psychology and um, then I really started participating in my own recovery because I learned how essential it is to succeeding in long-term recoveries. Like you have to be an active participant. So um, actually when I was still in college, I started working with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And then I started doing more public advocacy. So speaking at conferences and fundraisers and schools and slowly but surely I got more comfortable sharing about what I have experienced. And then now I run a mental health company full-time and I speak at conferences all the time. I actually just got home from one a couple of days ago and I'm leaving again on Thursday. So um, it's a huge part of my life now, but I like I said earlier, if you would have told me that when I was 14, 15, I don't know how much uh, relief it would have brought me at the time. Sure, sure. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, listening to one of your TED Talks, you were describing uh, sort of like the kind of suicidality of like sort of being sort of having like two components in the sense of like one being that the sort of criminal wanting to like cause harm to oneself, whereas the other sort of being the victim. And I was just wondering kind of, you know, with your journey, did you feel like more so one or the other? Did you toggle between them or? So I was talking to my therapist about this, maybe, you know, a month ago or something, it was really recent where I was talking about how um, I think some of my self-harm tendencies popped up because I was so used to being on the receiving end of pain that it felt like the norm. Um, you know how like uh, you'll see somebody, so I live in Florida, you live in Florida too, sounds like. I do, and, yes. Um, you'll meet someone who, when it's like 40 degrees, 30 degrees in Florida, which is very rare, um, you'll see somebody wearing like t-shirt or like tank top and shorts or something. You're like, what the heck is your deal? And they're like, I'm from Ohio. And this is nothing. It's like their body is so used to being cold that they're like, oh yeah, I love it. And I wonder how much of that existed in me where I was so used to being on the receiving end of harm and pain that it was sort of my comfort, even though it was uncomfortable. I don't want to 
you know, sometimes I meet people who are like, oh, I love pain or I love getting tattooed or something like that. And I'm like, I can't stand getting tattooed. I don't like getting hurt. It just, it feels terrible, but there must've been something underneath that felt familiar to me. And I wonder if that was part of why I very commonly identified as like a victim, someone on the receiving end of pain, but also um, interestingly on the other side, the part of me that wanted to cause harm I really, you know, I would walk into classrooms in college and I would picture myself destroying the classroom. Just, I mean, tearing down the walls and throwing desks and just ripping stuff apart. But I was so afraid of like hurting a person. I couldn't imagine like, because, you know, growing up in an abusive home and you feeling that pain, the last thing I wanted to do was inflict pain on somebody else. I mean, I didn't even like killing bugs. I still don't. Um, but there was this part of me that wanted to cause destruction, but because I didn't want to hurt other people, it was almost like I used myself as a default. Like if I don't want to hurt other people, well, I'll just hurt myself. Cause that doesn't count. And now looking back, I'm like, no, you are a, you are a people too. <laughs> It reminds you of like the expression of like, you know, if you were to treat yourself the way you treated your friend or whatever, it would be like, or reverse that. If you were to treat your friend or talk to your friend the way you talk to yourself, it would be like you would no longer have that friend because, you know, most people totally. talk to themselves with such, you know, negative self-talk. So, um, you know, in terms of like your kind of with your recovery and then before you were sort of able to get to the stage of, you know, this, you know, giving talks and helping other people through their own struggle, like, talk, like walk me through more of the process of, I guess, like, whether that was for you, like therapy or other things that, that sort of got you, you know, to that point where you were able to, you know, kind of get out of your own way a little bit and, and actually be able to start like sharing your story and helping other people who would you know, gone through similar sort of challenges in their lives. This is why I'm such a huge proponent of peer support. I talk about it all the time. My company, Cope Notes, is built on peer support as a principle. So all the content that we text out to people is written by peers with lived experience. And the reason why is because I did sit with clinicians and those conversations, some of those conversations really did help me. But the thing that really changed my heart was peer support. And all that means, if you're listening and you're not familiar, is someone who has lived experience with some type of hardship. So it could be, you know, grief or addiction or, you know, whatever you want it to be. Um, talking to someone else who has a similar experience, that's it. That's the whole underpinning of what peer support is. And I'm telling you, when you grow up and you think I'm the only person hallucinating like this, I'm the only person who, who is debilitated by OCD. I'm the only person who um, stays up for days on end in like bouts of mania. Um, and then you have real conversations with other people who know exactly what you're talking about. It is the most humanizing thing ever. You go from feeling like you're an ant and there's some mean elementary school kid frying you with a magnifying glass um, to feeling like you're just a person who is experiencing something that's tough, surrounded by other people 
who are also experiencing tough things. It was, it was so transformative and it got me away from, you know, the reason why I wouldn't have considered advocacy before because was because I was like, I'm such a freak. I don't want to tell people about this stuff. What will they think? And then the more time I spent with peers with lived experience, I'm like, oh, there's so many of us, dude. If I get on stage and talk about my experiences with depression or anxiety, I know that there will be people in the audience who will be thinking, yup, preach, preach. So it's not just me, a bunch of people staring at me like I'm in a zoo or something. I know every time I get on stage that there are people in that audience who can relate to me. And that is so comforting. And it frees me up to tell the truth on stage instead of trying to posture and pretend like I have it all figured out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think people can definitely sense that like off that just like raw authenticity and like it's, it's attracts people. Cause I feel like so many people do that, like posturing and, I don't know, for me, like thinking about, you know, just preparing for this interview and thinking about your involvement with music and like thinking about music's impact on my life and just, you know, kind of tying in with mental health. Like I think about an artist like Kid Cudi, who, you know, speaks a lot on on mental health sort of topics and was kind of like the first in, I guess, in hip hop, like at least in my experience, like listening growing up, who was just like talking about all of this stuff that like I could relate to and but like no one else was talking about and it seemed weird to do so but it was just like all right I'm gonna you know he's like all right I'm gonna talk about this stuff you know regardless of the way you perceive it and then it you know attracted so many droves of people who are now like saying like you know Kid Cudi saved my life Kid Cudi got me out of this depression whatever so you know I think it's it's like just telling your story I think there's there's so much power to it when you don't like sugarcoat it and try to make it seem like something that you think other people are going to like to hear and just, you know, tell, tell what actually happened. Yeah. I think the truth of the matter is like, you take someone like Kid Cudi and, you know, some of his friends might have been like, Hey dude, don't open up. Cause like, what if people don't like you because of that? And he, I bet you anything he said, I don't know him, but I bet you anything he said, dude, a bunch of people already don't like me. They don't like my music. They don't like the way my voice sounds. They don't like my beats. Like, listen, I'm never going to make everybody happy. And that's something that's brought me a lot of peace is like, if people, you know, if people don't like me because of my experience, my lived experience with mental illness, um, I always think like, well, if I shut my mouth about that, they would have found another reason not to like me. They don't like the way I dress. They don't like my tattoos. They don't like my band, like whatever. If they're going to pick something to not like me over, at least it's something that's true about me, you know? Right. And I just feel like if, if you're really going to judge someone so much for, you know, sharing their real experience, like with mental health, it's like, I always just think it's like some shadow element of that person that they're like repressing that they, maybe they're not comfortable sharing their stories. <laughs> then they hear someone telling their story and they're like, you know, a part of them like resists that, but, you know, judging someone else for telling the truth of what they've gone through. I just, it seems so, so childish to me. Dude, I've also heard this and I don't, I don't back the mentality all the way, but I understand the sentiment I've heard. Um, friends say like, you know, if, if some employer won't hire you because 
they can Google you and find a video of you talking about um, your depression, then is that the type of employer you really want to work for anyway? Um, and I just, you know, that can be drawn out into so many things. Like, do you really want to have a best friend or a significant other who's going to judge you for that stuff? Is that the type of person you really want to be in deep, intimate relationship with? It's like, probably not. I understand there's probably exceptions and all sorts of edge cases, but I do think there's a kernel of truth to that. Like I want to surround myself with people who can tell the truth and not pretend with each other. And I want to have friends that I can open up to and be real with rather than being like, okay, I know this person is my friend, but I don't want to show them any of the, let's say, quote unquote, less socially acceptable parts of like the the stuff that people don't post on Instagram about the, the things that you don't talk about on a first date. Like if you can't talk with your friends about that stuff, who, who can you talk with about it? Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's like, a, you know, what's the point of like having a friend who you can't even be like honest with who you still have to like be posturing and like mm -hmm. putting, you know, putting forth like a piece of yourself that you think they're going to like. I mean, I feel like that was such a huge part of like my like teens and, and just like social anxiety growing up was because I was always trying to figure out, you know, how could I be someone that someone else would like rather than just like, I feel like once I learned to just like say, screw all that noise and just be myself, that's when I actually felt like I started attracting a lot better people, the people who had been trying to attract all along. Unreal. <laughs> well, Johnny, tell me about like, you know, when you initially started doing some of these talks and like mental health advocacy, like, did you just have a knack for kind of like sharing your story, like from the jump? Or was it something like where there skills and public speaking stuff that you had to develop or just walk me through that process? Yeah, I was. So in high school, I was playing concerts in my band and I was performing comedy. So I was doing improv comedy and both of those things I think helped me own a stage as a speaker and feel comfortable being myself on stage because, you know, I think, you know, if you go back to my first concert that I ever played, I stared at the floor the entire time. I was on stage for a half hour and I swear, I couldn't tell you how many people were there. I could tell you what shoes I was wearing because I stared down the entire set. I was so overwhelmed, so afraid, so intimidated. And over time, playing concerts started to become a little bit more exciting, a little bit more of an opportunity for me to express myself. I started feeling a little bit more comfortable and at home on stage. And then same with comedy. When I first started performing, I was scared out of my mind. And then slowly but surely, I gained a little bit more of a sense of comfort. And then when it came time to speak, I was just like, I've been on stage before. I've spoken, because before, if you were to say, do you want to be a public speaker? I'm like, no, that's so freaky. Absolutely not. And then I thought, well, singing is kind of like public speaking in a way. And doing improv comedy is a little bit like public speaking in a way. And then slowly, I kind of like tried to stretch some of the things I had learned from those other outlets into speaking. And I can tell you that, you know, maybe my first 
I don't know, my first six months, a year, maybe a couple years of speaking, my talks probably weren't that great. I loved writing. That was really my strength. So what I think helped me transition into speaking was I would sit down and write and journal. I'd write poetry and prose, short stories. Um, I'd write these really long journal entries and like stream of consciousness stuff. I've been doing that forever. And I was like, if I could just get that little feeling of magic and connection that I feel when I write on a stage, then I will have bridged that gap. And really what became um, an incentive for me to speak was that lots of people would not read what I wrote. I mean, if I, you know, if I walk up somebody on a street and I say, uh, will you read a poem I wrote? Most people will be like, no, <laughs> or they'll say yes and never read it because poetry isn't really the most popular form of art nowadays. But if I went up to someone and say, would you listen to a song on Spotify or would you watch my TED talk on YouTube? They're a little bit more like, oh yeah, that's a little bit more acceptable. So I wanted to keep writing, but I also wanted to translate it into a medium that more people could connect with. And when you did so, when you started doing so, like what was some of the initial feedback that you got back like from you know the audience? I think the most comfortable or, or the most um, the the most encouraging things that made me feel comfortable on stage were not like the things that I thought I wanted to hear, which is like, you're a good speaker or, you know, it wasn't like compliments of me on stage. It was more people saying, I get it. Or like, thank you for saying that out loud. Cause I want to say stuff like that. And I don't, and it was, it was less about my speaking ability and more about people relating to me and me feeling connected. I'm like, no way you've been through something like that. It was that it was again, that peer support component that made me be like, wow, this is something that I want to do. I, I sure hope to God I get better and I will work on getting better at being a better speaker. But I think most of my encouragement came in the form of people saying, not good job, but I understand. Right, right. What about in, when you kind of like look back on all the, I, I assume you kind of cycle through different uh, topics or different presentations and whatnot, like what do you, when you like look back on all the different presentations that you've given, do you have any like favorite specific stories to tell or subjects you like to speak on that seem to really resonate with your audience? Yeah, I love telling stories. So like I'm the CEO of a company and there's a definite um, pressure to posture. And I've said that a couple of times on this podcast so far, and I do it to keep it front of mind to keep myself from doing that. I need to get ahead of that tendency um, that all people in leadership feel to present this like a rugged, stiff upper lip exterior where they're like, I'm awesome. I can face anything. Um, and so I really love telling stories that people are surprised to hear me tell. Um, and many of those are ones that don't make me look that great. <laughs> so there's stories about um, moments when I felt really embarrassed about self-disclosing um, some of my symptoms or um, opportunities that I had to um, connect with someone I always looked forward to meeting that were very uh, disappointing and sad and kind of um, like there's all of those stories are so funny in their own way 
because I think what most people expect when a CEO gets on stage to give a talk is about power and perseverance and push through. And of course, there's plenty of that in my story, but I love flipping that script and being like, let me tell you about a time that I went on a date with a girl and it went really well. And then the next time we went to go on a date, she treated me differently. And it's because she Googled me and read all of my dirty laundry online about all I had been through. And then we had to spend the second date talking about that. Like, I love having the opportunity to share stories like that, to show people like even people in leadership, even startup founders, even CEOs, even public speakers, all of these people that um, I think audiences tend to put on a pedestal um, I like highlighting, like we are all human beings and we all experience these like embarrassing, awkward moments. And some of them do have to do with disclosure and that's not bad. We should talk about that. And and then the best part is I have people come up and say like, oh man, I had a dating experience like that. Or, you know, when my now wife found out I had bipolar, she's like, are you going to freak out on me and stuff? And I had to like educate her on what bipolar is and stuff. I hear all sorts of stories like that where it just feels nice to feel um, connected through the kind of leaning into that awkwardness of being like, how do I broach this? You know? For sure. What, how much would you say like the, like your speaking engagements and just like telling your story over and over, like how, how much do you feel like that is sort of like cathartic for you or sort of like part of your own, you know, continued like mental health journey? At first, it was not, I, I, I think it was good for me at first. Um, and then I started, I didn't realize that I needed to set boundaries in advocacy. So I made myself super available. And that actually had a very negative effect. So maybe for the first year or two, um, it was very healthy for me to kind of give shape to some of the things I had experienced and talk about these things openly. But then I became so available to everybody and I would answer any question, like nothing was off limits. And then that started hurting me, like having to dig back through some of those memories so commonly and always having to talk about like keeping these old stories of, of abuse and um, illness so alive in my life. And I was like, ugh, this feels terrible. Like here I am trying to heal in recovery. And then every time I turn around, someone's asking me about the darkest, darkest, darkest moments in my life. I don't feel like regurgitating that all the time. It proverbially it left a bad taste in my mouth. And so I had to get to the point where now I have pretty strict boundaries about what I will share and won't share. And even I just uh, spoke at a conference on, fr so today's Monday, I just spoke at a conference on Friday, this past Friday. And um, on stage during q and I said, um, feel free to ask anything you want of me, anything, as long as you know that I have the right to not answer. So if you ask something that's too, don't worry about asking something that's too invasive or too personal or anything like that. Just ask what you want to ask. And if I don't feel comfortable answering it, I won't answer. That's it. So you don't have to try to discern what questions would be most appropriate. No, no, no. Ask what you want to ask. I have the right to answer or not answer. And fortunately, 99% of the time people ask really respectful questions when you set that boundary. Because if you don't, I think people will kind of 
poke and prod and pry. And there's this like morbid curiosity. And I think once I started getting ahead of that and saying, hey, I'm a real human being that's talking about my real lived experience. If I don't feel like answering a question, I don't have to. Once I just stand my ground for just five, that took five seconds to say. Um, and all of a sudden the, the, the mood in the room changes and people are like, oh, this is not like um, some science experiment, right? This is like a real person in front of us and we need to respect that. So I think once I reestablished boundaries, it then became a good thing for me. So it was good at first, not great because I slacked on boundaries and now it's really healthy for me again. Fair enough. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Would like when with that experience of like setting boundaries, like what do you think? How do you think that like sort of translates to like other people, um, maybe who you talk to or you know, who you work with, um, you know, in terms of cope notes, like people who are going through different mental health challenges and there's like the, you know, the the sort of push to like open up and like share your story and like be vulnerable, like the stuff all the positive sort of sides of that that we were talking about, but then you're now kind of mentioning maybe sort of a, a dark side of that. So like how, when, when it comes to the mental health advocacy that you do, what's your advice maybe to people who, you know, are sharing their story, maybe not as, not in a, as quite public man, you know, manner as you're doing on stage, but just people who are talking with other people about their journeys, but maybe run into that like same uh, same sort of issue regarding setting boundaries. Dude, I, the two skills that I try to exercise as often as I can, and this is new. So like I said, this is not, I've not been like a master of this this whole time. It's something I'm now learning is really essential to doing advocacy. Number one, I try to remind myself that at any time I can exercise the right to not answer a question. Um, and anyone can do that. Any We forget, even in a job interview, we forget that we can just be like, I'm not comfortable answering that. We forget, we can say at any time, anywhere, we are people who can make that decision. I, I used to forget that. I used to think, well, they asked, I have to answer. No, you freaking don't. You can do whatever will protect your wellness the best. And then the second thing on that same vein is I am quick to exercise my right to remove myself from an uncomfortable situation. So I have gotten up and walked out of a party. I've gotten up and walked out of a, a meeting. I've gotten up and walked out of like a business dinner or a business lunch. You can do that anytime, anywhere you are in charge. And I think if there's, there's kind of a fear of people that I've talked to that I've spoken to about advocacy where they'll almost feel like, what if I get trapped in this? Like, what if I open up and then I have to disclose some other thing? It's like, you don't have to disclose crap. You will never be trapped. You get to choose. If you're opening the door and saying, hey, here's a little bit of my experience and someone wants to take too much, you can pause it. You can redirect the conversation. You can say, let me get back to you on that. You can get up and walk away. Just remembering that you have that autonomy is so free. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, keeping that that in mind seems very powerful. So I, I wanted to kind of transition a bit to to talk about your company, uh, Cope Notes, which it's in Forbes described it or uh, termed it the future of digital mental health support. So that's quite 
quite the compliment there. What, uh, tell me a little like kind of where you, how you formulated the idea for Cope Notes and kind of just explain to the audience like what it is. Yeah, the, I'll start with where it came from. So I, like I said, I went to school for psychology. I was studying neuroscience and abnormal psych super fascinated by those subjects and i was learning about how the brain can grow and change it can learn new things and then it can change the way it thinks over time and my whole life i had thought that i was stuck with the brain i have there's nothing i can do about it this is my lot in life um i didn't know that you could teach just like you can learn a new language your your brain can learn to think in different patterns um so I was fascinated by the idea of neuroplasticity, um, but then I was being transformed through peer support. I was sitting down with real people who shared my experience. And I'm like, man, this is so much better than like some chatbot AI tool that's like stringing together keywords. This is like real human connection. I freaking love that feeling of hearing from someone who knows what I'm going through. And I wanted to combine those two things. And that's where Cope Notes came from. It's the, it's the neuroplasticity principles that I learned in school combined with the real human connection of peer support that transformed me. So basically what Cope Notes does is we send daily text messages that are written by peers with lived experience and reviewed by mental health professionals. And the text could contain, you know, a psychology fact, a journaling prompt, an exercise, some kind of um, actionable health education information. But then the coolest part is that the messages are delivered at random times so that no two people ever get the same text at the same time. And here's where the neuroscience stuff comes in. The random timing actually surprises the brain and interrupts negative, something called automatic negative thought. And over time, your brain learns to think in healthier patterns. So your brain is physically forming new neural pathways associated with coping skills and resilience. But the coolest part is you don't even feel it happening. It's just like, all you do is read a couple text messages, you text back maybe once in a while, journal. Um, and over time, your brain is physically changing the arrangement of its synapses in order to prioritize positive thought. It is the coolest thing in the world um, I'm the number one fan of Cope Notes because I use it every day and it impacts me every day. But it's it's a privilege to be able to combine those two things. Um, the the neuroscience stuff that I learned in school with the peer support that transformed me um, into something that only takes 15 or 30 seconds a day to use. Right. Yeah, that's that's I love just like anything that like harnesses that that principle of neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change and like that's integral to like the work that I do in terms of, you know, using neurotechnology to rewire the brain. But then it's like, there's that whole other side of things of like the psychology of, of like, actually like the thoughts that you think, like the, um, the, the attitudes and beliefs that you choose to hold, like that is also changing your brain on a like physical level. So that's super awesome that you found a way to like integrate that or just bring that, um, bring a way to like rewire some of those like negative beliefs to people's lives. What, uh, can you tell me like, can you give me some examples of maybe like, it doesn't have to be like the exact text that someone might get, but just like some examples of, uh, 
kind of the general like material that that someone might be getting in one of these texts? Yeah, so I get this question a lot. So often that I put on the home page of our website a phone that scrolls through a week's worth of text messages so you can see real examples of messages and I will read one. Um, I'll, I'll just look in my Cope Notes text thread and pick one to read you, but I do want to say half of what we do is the content. So all our content is like original content that we drafted, that a team of peers with lived experience have drafted um, in order to make this positive impact on your brain. But the other half is the random timing, the delivery, these messages popping up when you're sitting in traffic or when you're being yelled at by your boss or whatever. That is crucial. So when I read this message to you, it will not have the impact that it would have if you knew that you were the only person in the world to receive that text at that time and it interrupted whatever was happening in your day. That's the real power of Coke Notes is that delivery. But I will read you a text message um, just so you can hear an example of one. Um, let's see. Oh, this one is actually pretty good. Um, great, great timing too, by the way. So this came in on Wednesday at 7.10 p.m. this past Wednesday. Um, and this is just what I got. So nobody else got this text at this time. This was just for me. It says beating yourself up for making mistakes is like tackling your own teammate because they stepped out of bounds. Show yourself a little extra grace today. And all of the text messages are coded um, according to the specific psychological principles that are being reinforced there. And that one, I mean, upon first look, that's rubbing me as kind of like a self-esteem, self-forgiveness, self-image type of angle. Um, and at the time, it was super relevant. And even looking back at it now, just a few days later, I'm seeing new ways that I can apply it to my life. Um, but there are you know, Lord knows how many texts I've received from Cope Notes that when they came in, I was just like, wow, what are the odds that I get that text right now? That is super applicable. And then your brain tries to, it, it makes an effort to contextualize the text. And that's where the real magic happens is you go like, why would I get that text right now? Why me? How can I apply this to my life? And really the application is where people see fruit. Right, right. Yeah. And the different like meaning that could be made from that, I'm sure would be different, you know, every single day that you receive the text, it's like it could apply to a different situation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I think the biggest misconception about Coke Notes is that we either send um, just like positive affirmations, like I am beautiful, or smile or something, or, or we send super clinical jargon filled content that is very confusing but we're actually right in the middle so we send everything that we send is based on proven psychological principles every single text message but it's written in plain english so that you don't need a psych degree to figure out what we're talking about and i think that's the sweet spot for health education is you want there to be a proven psychological principle underneath everything you learn but also you don't want it to be so complex that you can't learn it right well and that makes makes perfect sense with you were you were saying in terms of like formulating cope notes like it being a combination of like the like lived experience people like uh 
peers or whatever who who but also like the mental health professionals like kind of working together right in terms of like mm -hmm. formulating those texts yeah were there are there like do you did you see any like big like divisions in the sense of like did did the mental health professionals like want to send like different texts than say like the peer support people or was it like a, a really nice synergy like right off the bat so the way that we do it is actually we separate it out so peers write the content and clinicians review edit and approve the content so they're actually two separate teams all together but what's been really cool is to see how many texts actually get approved without edits because the clinicians will review and go like, actually, this makes perfect sense. We can code it to these psychological principles. Let's push it through. And it's it's cool because you see kind of these clinicians open up to this idea of like, wow, man, peers really get it. Like these, you know, there's real validity to peer support. And I think, so I'm, I'm actually testing at the time of this recording, um, I'm testing next week to get my CRPS, my Certified Recovery Peer Specialist designation. Um, and part of that training, we, I had to do coursework and workbooks and all this stuff. And part of that was like um, learning how peer support is becoming more integrated into clinical care and how part of it is for peers to respect clinicians and say like, okay, I get it. You're a doctor, right? Like I have to listen to you, but also I am a CRPS. You have to listen to me. Like we are both on this care team for this client and we're both acting in the best interest of the client. And there's this kind of beautiful synergy that you're seeing come not only within Cope Notes um, for the content team, but also outside in the greater continuum of care, where you're seeing clinicians really start to respect and value the opinions of um, peer support specialists. And it's like a beautiful thing to see. That is beautiful. Well, when it comes to like, you know, sort of like looking at the kind of the landscape of sort of mental health treatment, um, you know, and kind of like, I feel like there's so many, in addition, you know, to what you're doing with Cope Notes, like so many, um, you know, kind of digital services. And I feel like, you know, the whole like psychedelic renaissance in terms of mental health treatment is, is blowing up now too. Like what, what do you sort of uh, look at or like what, uh, what other kind of projects kind of pique your interest when it comes to kind of revolutionizing mental health treatment and just helping people get better? Lately, the the two things I'm really passionate about are um, prevention, obviously, that's a big thing that Cope Notes does. Um, but also in general, it's like, you know, is it better to um, go to the dentist when you get a cavity or brush your teeth so well that you don't get cavities? Like the answer is clear. And so I love seeing slowly, 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 but surely um, the, the greater continuum of care is starting to be like, oh crap, we need to really prioritize prevention. So that makes my heart happy is just getting ahead of the hurt, preventing people from um, winding up in a crisis situation in the first place. So I'm super passionate about that. Um, but then also the other thing that's really been exciting me, especially lately, um, is the how much more accepted art therapy is becoming uh, for me writing and painting and uh, playing music and stuff was so instrumental. Wow. Instrumental um, pun, not intended. Um, it, it was so instrumental in my recovery 
And last week at um, this conference that I was at, they I met several people who um, did art therapy in corrections. And then this coming week, um, when I go to a conference uh, later this week, there's a whole session on art therapy. And it just excites me to see like, dude, let me, I'm going to tell you the truth. If you came to me at 14 years old and said, you need to go to therapy, which people did, I would say no. And I went kicking and screaming. I had a terrible attitude. But if you would have come to me and said, hey, are you willing to try art therapy? You can do music and, and draw and paint and write. And you'll be with people who will kind of help you exercise that artistic expression in a way that's good for you. I'd be like, well, hold up. That sounds like it could be pretty cool. So I think there is there is a lot of fruit that I think will come from expanding the way that we define traditional therapeutic methods. Like most people picture, when I say therapy, most people picture sitting down on a couch across from this stuffy office with a box of tissues and, you know, just this like stiff clinical setting. And it doesn't have to feel like that or look like that. So when I see more creative options like art therapy, and I'm also seeing like recovery gyms, um, like the Phoenix is a, a recovery gym and they uh, will like get sober people together and they're like doing CrossFit and they're going on dog walks and doing yoga in the park and mountain climbing and uh, paddle boarding and stuff. And I'm just like, yo, this from, for, for my resistant, for my treatment resistant self, the part of me that is such a pump and just like rails against the idea of a traditional therapy session, which now I'm so grateful for my traditional therapy sessions. But if you were to go back in time and try to appeal to me, I would need you to say, oh, it's art, it's art therapy, or this is a recovery gym. And there's like a, a social component. There's a self-expression component. There's a movement or activity component. Um, I'm really hopeful for how those things will open up more treatment resistant individuals like myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see that like teenagers, just like that group being like such a, like could benefit so much from that, you know, where it's like, I don't know. I mean, even with the, you know, mental health attitude, you know, attitudes towards mental health changing, I feel like it's still, you know, stigmatized and, you know, just a, something that's like people decide not to do, even though it could help them. But like something like what you're talking about with the art therapy or just different, different forms of therapy, it, it seems like it could totally bridge that gap mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people. So that's, that's super cool to think about. And the prevention piece too. I mean, I, it's, it's like, I talk to people all the time with the work that I do, where it's like, I, I equate it to like going to the gym and it's like people, you don't just go to the gym when there's like, when you, your shoulder's hurting, you might actually take a break from the gym yeah. right, when you like injure your shoulder. But that's like the attitude I feel like people take towards, you know, seeking any sort of mental health help is like, until there's a problem, people aren't usually thinking about, you know, ways to improve their brain or ways to improve their their mental health so yeah I think I'm I'm in alignment with what you're saying there with like the prevention aspect I think that's that's so huge amen well Johnny we're we're coming up onto the end of the show here um any any final thoughts related to this whole discussion that we've had today before we wrap up just that you know I try to say this whenever I remember to say it that if you're the type of person who just spent an hour listening to a conversation like this, 
you are almost guaranteed to be further along in your recovery than you think. Like it took me a long time to get to the maturity and curiosity and interest level that would allow me to spend a whole hour listening to something like this. And now I'm super passionate about health education. Um, I always encourage people to consume more media that is helpful to them. If you're in the car, if you're doing dishes or whatever, um, you can choose to turn on something that will not help you or turn on something that will help you. So I encourage you, if you've spent the last hour listening to this, you are a superhuman. So please continue investing in that and let the next thing you listen to also feed you in this way. So don't let this episode be like a one and done thing. Either listen to more episodes of this podcast, listen to the Cope Notes podcast on whatever podcast platform you use, watch a TED talk, like do something that will continue the momentum um, because you won't regret it. I'd echo that and share with a friend who you think might also find it helpful, um, you know, pass it along. So Johnny, if, if people want to like connect with you or find out more about your work, your TED talks, Cope Notes, uh, where would you direct them to? So if you want to learn about Cope Notes and try it for free, you can go to copenotes.com. If you want to learn about me as a speaker um, or any of my advocacy stuff, you can go to johnnycrowder.com. If you want to watch my TED Talks, you can go to YouTube and type in my name, Johnny Crowder, and they'll come up. Um, and then if you're on social media, I use LinkedIn probably the most. And then I'm also on Facebook and Instagram at Johnny Crowder Loves You. Love it. <laughs> That's a great name. Um, perfect. We'll, we'll include all the links to that in the show notes. And for the listeners who enjoyed the episode, really appreciate it if you wrote us a, a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, and you can tune in to the audio version of the episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or pretty much any of the other major audio streaming platforms. You can also view the full uh, podcast video at uh, YouTube channel NeuroFlex. Also, podcast clips are posted on that channel. So, Johnny, I wanted to, you know, really thank you so much for coming on the show today and just sharing your, you know, raw, vulnerable story. And and I, I think it'll benefit, you know, countless people. And I think the work that, that you're doing is just tremendously impactful. So I just wanted to applaud you for that. Thank you a ton for having me, dude.